I can remember answers to these questions. <laughs> you blocked it all out. <laughs> Sometimes things happen that I really wish all of you could just be involved in and listen. I just told her that I was going to ask her what she saw in him. And she said, I don't know if I can remember the answer to the question. <laughs> yeah, right off the bat, I just embarrassed you. Isn't that great? I'm used to it. You're used to it. We're, uh, today we're, we're finishing our series. And um, <clears throat> we're talking about taking up your cross daily. So in the first service, we had Vicki Cox. Some of you know Vicki. Uh, she's blind. She didn't used to be blind, but she's blind now. We talked about what it was like to uh, have her life take a sudden turn. She comes up to me every Sunday and says, you're looking good, Pastor. <laughs> By the way, she's the only one that tells me that. <laughs> so <laughs> I have Ryan and Jen Odell up here, and I wanted them to come up. And uh, most of these people don't know your story with your children and your son. So introduce yourself and tell them a little bit. Um, like Jim said, I'm Ryan Odell. This is my wife, Jen. Hold it up. There, there you go. go. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've been here at DCC coming up on four years for the second time. Um, we lived up here um, for a number of years before I moved back down to Denver. And um, that was uh, kind of an important part of the story as it was God's timing and planning to move us to Denver. Because um, when we moved back down, um, we found out that our son, our oldest son, who's eight now, was diagnosed with brain cancer. Uh, he was 18 months old and um, went through a number of rounds of chemo and um, bone marrow transplants and it's about six months of treatment overall. What's his name? Connor. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. And uh, yeah, so that's kind of the... The story, looking back on it, it was definitely God's leading to bring us back down to Denver for this, that time. And there was probably nothing in any of your plans that said your oldest is going to have brain cancer. Not at all. Not a thought. And so what, what did you feel? What, what happened to you during that? I'd like to hear from both of you. What? <laughs> you can do it. I can, you I can, can do tell it. you uh, definitely a sense of hopelessness. Um, just complete, over, completely overwhelmed, um, having no idea how to handle um, and or how to react. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> so, what was the process like to, uh, in one sense, get used to it, but in another sense, to develop a different way of thinking about life? Um, I mean, that's a distinct turn. Right? Three years ago, you were here when I was diagnosed with cancer, and that's a distinct turn in life. It's something that you can't plan for. But yet, you have to readjust, and your faith has to come along with it. Right? I can help. Um, hi. Microphones are not my strength. Um, I remember thinking, how on earth am I going to do this? Like, mm. I just was so tired. I was pregnant with our second son at the same time too. So just like every day, it was, it was one day at a time. There wasn't this long-term perspective anymore. It just kind of became, what do I need to do today? And so to have that tunnel vision and be looking at one thing, it's a lot easier to do than to be focused on, well, you know, where are we going to go next week? Or what are we going to do next weekend? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and looking back, it was it was definitely God giving us the grace needed for that moment and that day, and just being able to um, focus and and handle that as it came. Mm-hmm. What's it been like since then uh, for his journey and for you with him? So he went through uh, I think it was two three years of um, MRIs post. Um, treatment MRIs, and everyone was clear um, leading up to panic attack. It's amazing how the devil plays with your mind and plants things. So uh, leading up to each one, it was um, just turning back to God and relying on him that no matter what the outcome was, that it was still in his plan. Um, I think uh, Connor's doing great now. He's been clear for six years, almost six years. And so he, no side effects, which is probably one of the biggest miracles, um, at least none that we've ever seen so far. So typically there's a lot of pretty significant side effects with something like this. Did you see your faith growing through this? Yes. um, At the time, there were definitely, I mean, many doubts, many doubts about God, about how this could possibly be part of his plan, how... He could allow this to happen to a little boy. Um, and each time of questioning, and it really just turned us back to him. And we had quite a few talks through the years and um, through that time of just how realizing how much it really strengthened our faith. And, uh, and looking back on it, it was really God preparing us for a number of other things and just always reminding us to turn to him and to... Um, that it is still all within his plan. Mm-hmm. Wow, thanks for sharing. Vicki thinks I look pretty good. Do you think I look okay? No comment? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It really does prove that love is blind. On the back of your uh, bulletin, there's several announcements and lots of good information. I'll let you read it. Um, just a couple of things I want to call attention to on the back is, um, uh, well, we have kids sing next week. That's one of the reasons why it's kind of quiet at the moment. Normally, we've got 800 kids in here, and they're all across on the other side singing. The uh, After service, this is the last luncheon that we're doing. It's the last Sunday in the this series. So we invite you to join us after lunch if you'd like to talk further and process some of the things we're going to talk about this morning uh, when it comes to uh, taking up your cross daily. And then we have a woman's self-defense class. Uh, Grandmaster Sean Cavins is going to teach that. He's a very dear friend of mine, and um, we're very, very blessed. There aren't many uh, eighth-degree black belts in the world, and we have one up here. I study under him, as most of you know, and I also teach for him, so he's going to put that on. So if you're interested... I think it'll it'll be a very enjoyable class for you. I just love being with him. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Um, Tim Glasgow lost his uncle, and Deb Nelson lost her mother. Those are two that I know of. And um, so we just should lift them up in prayer. So let's stop for a moment. God, we do lift up these two. Uh, Lord, I'm sure there are others here struggling as well. We don't in any way mean to slight them. But these two are just on my heart at the moment. We lift them up. I do pray for Tim. He's gone through so much loss in the last couple of years. And help him, Father, to be uh, strong today uh, as he's there back home, uh, helping with the funeral and all those things. 
And Father, for Deb, I just have so enjoyed the text with her back and forth the last couple of days. Again, both of these people are just godly people and very instrumental and core in our church. And um, it's hard, Lord, to say goodbye. Some of us have said goodbye to our mothers and would give a lot to um, have them here again. And we know we'll see them in eternity. We look forward to that. But in the meantime, it is really hard uh, losing people that we love whether it's friends or family. So be with both of them and their families. Show them grace and give them strength during this time. Thanks, Lord. We lift these things up to you. We lift them up to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're, uh, we're in the final series. Now let's just do a real quick review of where we've come. Right after Advent, the beginning of the year, we did a series on what went wrong. And that's where we stopped and we asked the questions. What are the core questions of the Old Testament that the Old Testament leaves unanswered? It's just a big question mark at the end. Then we moved from there into uh, Lent, where we did a series on a revolutionary rescue where we tried to answer those questions in terms of the cross. So it's not till you get to the New Testament and you look at what Jesus accomplished on the cross that you see the answers to those big questions. And everything shifted. Everything changed on that Good Friday. And then on Resurrection Sunday, we read Revelation 5 together and we really celebrated the... uh, the Lord and what he accomplished on our behalf. And then from there, we moved into this series, a revolutionary response. And we're asking the question, if Christ died a countercultural death, what does it look like for us to live a countercultural life? Hopefully you got out of the series and Lent that what everything Christ did was very countercultural. It went against what everybody was thinking. You're going to see it again today, that whole pattern. We also said that um, at the crucifixion, the exile ended. You may remember if you're students of the Old Testament, uh, several hundred years, 400 plus, before Christ came, God had sent Israel into exile because of their sin. Every prophet said that. It was because of their sin. Uh, we read Ezekiel 10, the glory of the Lord lifted up, moved away, stopped and looked back at the temple, and then took off. God packed up his bags and went home, so to speak. And so when they came back into the land under Ezra and Nehemiah, they rebuilt the temple. We call that the intertestamental period or the second temple period. They rebuilt the temple, but the glory of the Lord never returned. He didn't come back. They understood that they were still trapped in their sin, that their sin had not been forgiven. Because when their sin was finally forgiven, as the prophets reminded us, the glory of the Lord would return to the temple. That didn't happen until Jesus came. So what does John say in one chapter 1? Um, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten. And so the glory of the Lord did return when Jesus came back, and our sins were forgiven on the cross, and His glory filled the temple again. It's just that it wasn't the Jerusalem temple. It was the new temple, us. And so at Good Friday, on that day, all of world history changed. Everything changed. And we, the exile ended. If the exile has ended, what is our life to look like? And that's what this series has been about. So today we're going to wrap up 
by uh, looking at what does it mean to take up your cross daily. And we're going to start in Luke chapter 9. If you want to turn to me, you can. It'll be up here on the overhead and you can see it. Luke chapter 9, it's a very famous passage, but in your English text, um, the whole question is of the taking up your cross starts in verse 21, but the, in the Greek text, it actually starts in verse 18. So we're going to begin there. This is Luke 9, verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? So they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. They are anticipating the prophets, a prophet coming back. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. But what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. So Jesus is beginning the process. He's, he's digging in a little deeper to see what their faith looks like, to see how their faith is developing, how it's coming along. And they said, you are God's Messiah. And then surprise, Jesus rebukes him. Verse 21, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. What's that about? I thought we were supposed to declare that Jesus is God's Messiah. And he strictly warned them. There's a rebuke here. So we know from Luke 4, earlier in Luke, that he had rebuked the demons. We're not going to go back and look at that, but there is a simple principle there that having the right answer does not mean you understand the truth. We know lots of people that can give good answers. Nor does it mean that you actually live out or know how to live out the truth. We learn from that. And so... Why would Jesus rebuke the disciples right here for giving the right answer? That's what this passage is all about. This rebuke. That's what it's about. If you can actually understand why he rebuked them, then you can actually understand what it means for Jesus to be God's Messiah. Before we answer that question, let me do just a quick historical overview of this concept of Messiah so you can see what they were saying, which is different than what we would say today. With the collapse of the southern kingdom under Nebuchadnezzar, that happened in 586 B.C., they were sent into exile, the Jewish people revived that God would raise up a king like David. All the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel, Daniel, they all talked about that, this coming king. For Samuel, he even prophesied it. So the term that we call Messiah is a Hebrew term, and the Greek term is Christ. So Christ and Messiah, one is Greek and one is Hebrew. And really, they just mean it means the anointed one. And the king was always anointed by one of the prophets. So when they talked about the anointed one, what they're referring to is a coming king. The Old Testament does not develop a formal doctrine of this coming Messiah. That's something that happened later. But the ancient Jewish world did because they went over 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Jewish scriptures and the Christian scriptures. There's over 400 years of silence there. And so they began, the rabbis talked about it. They wrote, they wrote about it in the Jewish writings. They're trying to explore this idea of who is this Messiah, this king. The general thought was that he would be what we call an eschatological king. Some of you have heard the technical term eschatology, the study of future things. The eschatological king means king that's coming in the future. That's all it means. He would be the perfect king chosen by God through whom God would deliver Israel from all of her enemies and restore the monarchy. Because the monarchy had been abolished after the exile. He's going to come back. 
During the intertestamental period, that's the silent years between the testaments, this hope grew even more. It increased. They thought that while the the, uh, Messiah was going to be human, he would be better than or far greater than any of the early prophets. So that's why they said people are saying, you're Elijah, you're one of the prophets, you're you're the Messiah that's coming. No one, no one had connected him with the Son of Man imagery out of Daniel. No one connected him with the servant of Yahweh out of Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Nobody connected him with God himself. He's just going to be a human. He's a little better than all the other prophets, earlier prophets. So this is actually captured at the end of Luke, Luke chapter 24. You may remember Jesus, after the resurrection, is walking on the road to Emmaus, and there he catches up with these two disciples. It's a great story. These two disciples, verse 17, he asked them, So what are you discussing as you're walking along? <laughs> they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them <laughs> asked him, Are you the only one here who doesn't know what happened? I love it. They're talking to the Messiah who just got off the cross. Are you the only one that doesn't know what happened? <laughs> he goes, What things? I love it. You know, that's what he does with us, isn't it? <laughs> it's a good thing we're like toddlers in his eyes. What things? He asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers, they handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. Obviously, he can't be the Messiah. Or that wouldn't have happened. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. You can see that hope of the first century. A very archaic Simple, complete view of the Messiah. And then in Acts 1, just before Jesus ascends into heaven, the disciples, they express something similar. Verse 6. Then they gathered around Jesus and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They thought that when the Messiah came, he would rule with an iron fist. Their Messiah was associated with a sword, military might, political dominance. Some of you were here on Palm Sunday when Stephen told the story of all the kings, the general history of the kings. Because he raised the question, did a great job of raising the question, why did they lay down their cloaks on one Sunday and crucify him the next Friday? Why did they do that? Because they expected him to be a king like all the other kings. To break the Roman dominance. To rescue them. And by the end of the world, not who he was. They turned on him and he shouted, crucify him. He wasn't the king they thought that he would be. So when Peter claims that Jesus is God's Messiah, he's importing all of this into his expression. In other words, he was wrong. He was wrong. He didn't understand the truth. So Jesus said, don't you tell a soul. Because you haven't figured it out. That's why why I rebuked him. So then Jesus, he, um, he wants to redefine what the Messiah, who the Messiah really is. And once again, we learn that having the correct answer does not mean you have the correct understanding. So he redefines and challenges this traditional framework in Luke chapter 9, verse 22. 
So Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. We, he just gave us entirely new categories that no one was thinking about. It's hard for us to, to get on the back side of this and realize how unusual and countercultural this is because we're all looking at it from 2,000 years down the road and we've had 2,000 years to absorb it. But they had never thought in terms of these categories. What? What are you talking about? He's going to suffer? How could he be a reigning king dominating the world if he's going to suffer? He's going to be rejected? He's going to be killed? He's going to be raised to life? And all this is going to happen by the Jewish leadership? The Jewish leadership said when the Messiah comes, we'll welcome him with open arms. Until it was Jesus. And they crucified him instead. This is the last thing anybody on the planet thought would happen. It's the last thing. No wonder he said to Peter, zip it. <laughs> you don't understand. So then he goes on from there and begins to explain what a true disciple looks like. Now they just had their world rattled. Their worldview was just shaken. And look at what he says next. Verse 23. Then he said to them all, all the disciples are there. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Not only did he revolutionize and challenge their idea of who the Messiah was, but he challenged their idea of what it means now to be a follower of this Messiah. They thought we would reign with this king. And he says, wrong. You're going to have to be crucified. Just like me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me, we'll save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Understanding who the true Messiah is, is the very core of a changed life. And he just shifted their entire worldview. Wait, we're not going to reign on thrones? We're not going to overpower the Romans? We're not going to dominate the world like we did? No. No, not at all. It's just the opposite of what you thought. All right. What does he mean by this? In the first century, the cross was not a mere symbol or figure of speech. It wasn't. It was a, a repugnant instrument of cruelty. It involved pain, dehumanization, shame. They stripped you of all your clothes, put you on the cross in front of everybody. They took away your human dignity and they let you die. And then, except for the Jewish cases, they would not take the body down off the cross because they wanted a reminder. They would leave you hanging on the cross and let the vultures have at it until you decayed to the point that your bones finally collapsed. Disciples would have seen lots and lots of crucifixions. It only happened for about 70 years in world history. It was eventually ruled as way too cruel, but it just happened to be these 70 years when they lived. They would have seen lots of these. And this is what he says you have to be like if you want to be my disciple. The cross was the most visible symbol of Rome's power. It was terrifying. It was used to punish criminals. It was used to quash slave rebellions. It was served as a warning against anybody rebelling against this great empire. There are no known survivors of Roman crucifixions in world history. None. 
In other words, it was a symbol of absolute totality, finality. It's the end. So the cross is not something that they wear around their necks. Little cute little thing. It wasn't the decal on the side of the chariot. Not at all. And that was not the symbol of the first century Christians. You know what the symbol of the first century Christians was? A fish. I will make you fishers of people. You see, a fish could help them. They, could, they wouldn't get in trouble. They could walk up and draw an ark in the sand. And unless you're a Christian, you didn't know what it meant. So if you came up and created the other ark, then you had a fish. It's almost like a secret handshake. But they did not use a cross. It was totally repugnant to them, what he was communicating here. It signified a total claim on the disciples' life. That's what it meant. That metaphor that he chose. And it is becomes a metaphor because Luke adds the word daily, unless you take up your cross daily. So it just became a metaphor with that word because you can't die on the cross every day of your life. It just doesn't happen that way. Therefore, he has something else in mind. He's beginning to talk about what does it mean to actually follow Christ? Yes, for some people that can include physical martyrdom, we have lost some people in our church to cancer. Some of us have had cancer, and by God's grace, we're still here. Right? We're still here. and But others haven't. Some of you may die earlier than you expect to. It does possibly include that, but that's not all it's talking about. It's more significant than that. You see, the cross symbolizes self-denial on a daily basis, an absolute commitment to Jesus in the willingness to deny yourself. So Luke changes the symbol from the final act of discipleship involving death to the first and repeated act of living for Christ. So it becomes the very first act We have not been asked to die for Christ. We've been asked to live for Christ. And there's a big difference. I'm reading a book, I've read it several times, um, The Radical Disciple by John Stott. If you've never read it, uh, there's some out in the book table. You can grab one out there and read it. And he's, as he's writing this book, The Radical Disciple, he's talking about what does this mean, some neglected aspects of our calling and he, at the beginning of the book, he said, My concern in this book is that we who claim to be disciples of the Lord Jesus will provoke him again. And he will say to us, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do what I say? Why do you do that? You call me Lord, but you're not obeying me. Genuine discipleship is wholehearted discipleship. Our common way of avoiding radical discipleship is to be selective. Choosing those areas in which commitment suits us and staying away from those in which it will be costly. You didn't have a choice, did you? You didn't when your son was diagnosed. I didn't have a choice when my doctor said, you have bladder cancer. Oh, (laughs) life just changed. But Jesus, because Jesus is Lord, we have no right to pick and choose the areas in which we will submit to his authority. None at all. He has complete control over that. So then the question becomes, for what purpose does God ask us to take up our cross daily? And what I want to spend the rest of my time on is just a brief discussion on suffering to help you grasp What is behind it? You remember we said that on Good Friday, 
Everything in world history changed. One of the things that changed was we became a kingdom of priests, our true vocation. It was restored. When we turn to Christ, our true vocation is stored. We are priests. When I say to you, you are priests, your first question should be to turn around and say, who am I a priest on behalf of? Because you're never concerned about yourself as a priest. You're always mediating for someone else. And there we begin to get a glimpse, just a glimpse of what our vocation is all about and is being in the lives of others. Uh, Again, John Stott, toward the end of the book, in his last chapter on dependence, Again, it's worth reading. Lots and lots of chapters in here on what he thinks. He wrote this just before he died. In fact, his final statement is, as I lay down my pen for the last time, uh, literally, since I don't know how to use a computer. I think he was 87. Uh, These are his final thoughts, and he died soon after this. He's talking about dependence. And he said, I come back to dependence as the most characteristic attitude for the radical disciple. I turn to John Wyatt for an eloquent expression of this priority of the dependence. And he quotes John, God's design for our life is that we should be dependent. We come into this world totally dependent on the love, care, and protection of others. We go through a phase of life when other people depend on us. And most of us will go out of this world totally dependent on the love and care of others. This is not an evil, destructive reality. Just the opposite. It's part of the design. It's part of of the physical nature that God has given us. Sometimes I hear older people, including Christian people, who should know better, say, I don't want to be a burden to anyone else. I'm happy to carry on living so long as I can look after myself. But as soon as I become a burden, I would rather die. This is wrong. We are designed to be a burden. We are designed to be a burden to others. You're designed to be a burden to me. I am designed to be a burden to you. And the life of the family, including the life of the local church family, should be one of mutual burdensomeness. This is what Galatians 6 is talking about. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Christ himself takes on the dignity of dependence. He is born a baby totally dependent on the care of his mother. He needs to be fed, needs to be bottom. He needs his bottom to be wiped, and he needs to be propped up when he rolls over. And yet he never loses his divine dignity. And at the end on the cross, he again becomes totally dependent, limbs pierced, stretched, unable to move. So in the person of Christ, we learn that dependence does not, cannot, deprive a person of their dignity or their supreme worth. And if dependence was appropriate for the God of the universe, it is certainly appropriate for us. I want to talk to you just a moment, include with this, also as a way of introducing um, our discussion over lunch. You see, a necessary part is suffering. Every one of you is going to suffer. That is a guarantee. Shouldn't be surprised. It's the one language we speak with the world. We share it. They understand suffering, don't they? What they don't understand is the grace with which we live it. So Paul addresses this, and these are going to appear for you up on the screen in 2 Corinthians 4. Famous verses, I underline key parts so you can focus on certain points. We have this treasure in jars of clay, he's talking about our life, to show that, here's the reason why we live in jars of clay. To show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Show it to whom? 
Myself? I already figured it out. No. The day I was diagnosed with cancer, yes, I cried. I don't want cancer. That's the last thing I wanted. But guess what? It didn't take long and my thoughts turned to you and I thought, hmm, I wonder what the Lord is going to do in this church. So I talked to the staff and he said, you've got to tell the whole church. So I got up here and told you, I have bladder cancer. We had that conversation. So we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that, to show someone else that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed. To whom? To you. We're meant to be a burden. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. To whom? To you. So when you start asking the question, why me? You missed the key point. Why you? Because God has enough confidence in you that he's going to use you for the rest of us. That's why. So then, death is at work in us, and that means that life is at work in you. I'm grateful for your testimony. I'm grateful for your faithfulness as an example to the rest of us of how to stand strong if one of our children suffers. I'm grateful to Vicki Cox, who never intended to be blind, and now she is, as a statement of what it means to the rest of us. He goes on to verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away. It's true. I testify to it. Yet inwardly we are being renewed every single day. For our light and momentary troubles. Elsewhere he said our light and momentary afflictions. Our light and momentary troubles. That's what these are. It may not seem to you at the moment. But they're light and momentary. These light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. In other words, yes, we do fix our eyes on the hope that's coming. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Just a couple of thoughts. I'll conclude with this. This is where we're going to, it'll stimulate maybe our discussion over lunch. The struggles that we face in life, yes, they are for the, our testing of our faith. As you said, your faith grew through that. My faith grew through it. Vicky's faith grew through it. All of you would testify that your faith grew through struggles. But it's far more significant than that. It's far bigger than that. It's in our struggles that we experience grace, according to Philippians 1.29. For to you it has been granted. That's the verb for the word grace. We don't have a verb for grace in our language. So you're always looking for a way to translate that. For to you it has been granted to not only believe in the name of Jesus, but to suffer for his sake. It's the means by which grace helps us grow. And just as importantly, it is the means by which our struggles reveal genuine faith to those around us. The world understands struggling. It understands affliction. It understands pain. It understands loss. It understands disappointment. What it doesn't understand is grace which is what we reveal. In other words, we become, as we've said many times, we become the means 
by which God reveals his glory and his kingdom to a broken world. And so the greatest gift God can give your friends is to help you suffer. Because it gets their attention when you suffer well. That's what it means to take up your cross daily. We have not been asked to die for Christ. We've been asked to live for Christ. And let him have control over what happens to us. Father, thank you. Thank you for your, your wisdom, for your goodness, for your love, for your glory. Thank you for being so kind to us. Thanks for using us in ways that make sense to our friends and neighbors who don't know you yet. Thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to come.